Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, let me say uh, just a word of appreciation for, for Delaney just in both of those services, being able to be a part of that, and uh, for Courtney and Nathan uh, playing and singing for that song. What you may not realize is that um, I was scheduled to do that dance, but I just got out of my boot, and so I didn't want to push it. And so I'm glad that Delaney was here to be able to cover that for me. So grateful for that. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be. We're going to get there. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time, but we're going to get to Matthew 7. So just kind of hold, hold tight, hold your spot there. And uh, we're going to look at some other passages of Scripture before we arrive. But Matthew 7 is where we're pretty much going to close out, looking at a message that I'll say is not, it's not easy to preach except for the fact that it may correct some wrong thinking. Uh, there are times for a pastor when you preach messages that... Um, you feel like God has laid on your heart and that this is such a case. Hopefully every message is that way and that is the case for me. But today's one of those that's a little bit tougher to preach because you know it's going to rattle cages and you know it's going to be, uh, be difficult to some degree. But the good thing and the redeeming value of that is that whenever cages are rattled and they're of God, it's because he has something better for us. And so this morning I want to preach a message entitled Immunized and we're going to begin focusing here eventually on Matthew chapter 7. How many of you enjoy getting shots? Let me see your hands. Any of you? All right, don't see anybody. How many of you dread and detest getting a shot? All right, that's, that's probably about what I would have expected. If you've ever traveled internationally, then you were familiar with the fact of getting an immunization to some degree or being vaccinated against a, whatever disease may be prevalent in that particular country. If you have kids, then you know you go through times of immunizations. You probably receive that yourself, have kids that have been through that. And when you think about an immunization and what really is, is, uh, is taking place whenever that is received, it's very simple. It could get much more complex than I'm able to go into. But at the very rarest form, the very base form, an immunization is simply the receiving of a some, some part of a disease so that your body can build a resistance to it. And what happens in many cases is when you're immunized against something, you know, whether it be measles or chickenpox or whatever, you're receiving a shot, you're receiving a more than likely a weakened dose in some cases of that specific disease for the purpose of your body being able to build up that resistance. Now, when you get immunized and you receive, and we'll use chickenpox as an example, when you get that shot and you're immunized against it, you don't come running home saying, everybody get away, I've got the chickenpox. You don't do that. Why? Because you've not, you don't have it full-blown. You've just received an immunization. It's not the real thing. It is the real thing to a small degree, but it's not as though you have the disease. It's an immunization, and here's what I want to present to you this morning, and we're going to try to bear this out in Scripture, is that I have a fear, a real fear, that in churches all over this country, and even in this one, in our 9 o'clock service as well as here this morning, that there are people who have been immunized against Christ. They have been immunized against Christianity. And what if I told you that those people are not who you think they are? What does it mean to be immunized against Christ? Well, if you were to take the people that I'm speaking of, and if you were to put them all in a group, more than likely they're ones that you see here just about every Sunday. And they're the ones that if you were to ask to raise your hand if you're a Christian, the ones that have been immunized against Christ that I'm speaking of, that I think Scripture is going to bear witness of, uh, they would be the ones that would be the first to raise their hand. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And you see them all the time at church events, and you see them carrying Bibles and you may even hear them praying prayers, and, and you, you see them in church. They sit by you almost every Sunday. In fact, you might even be one of them. 
And without even realizing it up to this point, you have become so familiar with the things of God, so familiar with Jesus and the lives of people around you. You may have been raised in a Christian home. You may have been in church almost your whole life. You were the one that turned the lights on and turned the lights off and people left. You were there every time the door was open. And yet at the heart of who you are, you have only received a small dose. You don't have the real thing. You have become immunized, and whenever the gospel is presented, you drift away thinking, I've heard this a thousand times. I'm fine with God. Just let this rest. This is for somebody else. And whenever you begin to think about what it means to walk closely with Christ and to live a life that's devoted to him, you think, oh, this is a sermon for others. I wish so-and-so could have been here to hear that message. Man, that would have hit him right between the eyes. I'm fine with God. I didn't really need that. I am a Christian. That message was for the people that are never here. That message was for the people that should have been here. That message was for the people that have been missing so often. But that's not for me because I'm fine with God. I got my shot. But you don't have, possibly, the real thing. Let me say this. I became a follower of Christ early in my Christian life. In God's providence, he had me raised in a family I would say, to yeah, we were a Christian family, but that emphasis came more from my mother's side. My earliest remembrances as a little boy of being taught the things of God and things out of Scripture, Noah and his ark and Jonah and the fish, all those really came through my mom for the most part. But we were raised in a family where we went to church. And there were times where there were peaks and valleys, but we went to church. And so for the earliest remembrances in my life, I can remember that God and the Bible and Jesus were a part of my life. And I came to faith in Christ early on. And I've heard my share of messages all the way up through my early years in high school and college and even seminary. (laughs) Hearing messages that would almost cause me, and at times earlier on would cause me to doubt my salvation that was there and was there from early on when I prayed and when I genuinely, literally gave my life to Christ to be a follower of Jesus. And so my desire this morning is not to cast doubt in those of you who have a genuine relationship with Christ. My desire is to rattle the cage of those who think you do, but you don't. And you've been immunized, and you feel like, I'm just fine, I'm a Christian. uh, But in reality, there's nothing that bears evidence on the outside that there's ever been a change that's come on the inside from the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, we we have a real delineation, I think, in church today, in our culture, where it's almost as though we draw a line between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a fully devoted, all-in follower of Jesus Christ. And what happens is, is we draw this line, and, and, and being a Christian could mean a host of things. I prayed a prayer. I don't really remember it. My heart wasn't really a part of it, but I remember people telling me way back then somewhere, I prayed this little prayer, and so I'm a Christian. Or I go to church, so I'm a Christian. Or I got baptized, so I'm a Christian. If I had a dollar for every time I talked to somebody about their relationship with Christ, tell me when that relationship with the Lord really started. Well, I was baptized in... And then they give me a year or or whatever. And those things don't save us. They don't make us right with God. It seems as, as though we draw a line between a Christian, but then there's another category of being a fully devoted, all in follower of Jesus Christ. And it's almost as though being a Christian is something less than that, even though the scriptures paint a picture that those who followed Christ followed him radically, surrendered, completely immersed in, in, in their identity in Jesus Christ. He shaped their life, he changed their life, he molded their life, he defined who they were. And yet today we find that the, the, the word Christian means something far less for many people. 
Maybe even some sitting here this morning. You could ask a question, well, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, I rip off the, my clients, I mean, pretty consistently, month after month, but a man's got to earn a living, right? But I'm a Christian, don't get me wrong. When I go to church, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for years. Man, you know I'm a Christian. I've been cheating on my spouse now going on the 13th month, but I'm a Christian. I mean, I don't feel any remorse over it. I don't have any plans to change, but I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I don't want a Lord. <laughs> I mean, I call the shots in my life, and I decide how I'm going to live and where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. And yeah, Friday night, week after week, doesn't match up with my Sunday mornings. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm in church. And I got a Bible, and I pray, and he's blessed me. Man, has he blessed me. I'm a Christian. And yet those who know who know you best would be those that are shocked the most to hear that you claim perhaps to be a fully devoted follower of the one man who's ever walked this earth that changed history. Disconnect. Immunize. I've got just enough to make me feel safe. But I've never really had a full-blown case of salvation. I want to give you a principle this morning that we're going to begin to trace through Scripture. And the principle is this, is that outward living validates inward spiritual life. Outward living, the way we live our lives on the outside, the words we speak, the life we live, the things we do, what drives us, what motivates us. Outward living validates, it proves, it gives evidence of inward spiritual life that only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've been here for any length of time, hopefully what you sense in me as I preach and as I proclaim the gospel every Sunday is that I'm not one of those that is a do-better preacher <laughs> yeah hopefully you don't go away feeling like you've just been grounded into the mud every week and man i just got to do better that guy, that guy tells me i got to do better i'm just failing i'm falling short got to do better got to do better yes there is a place where we live righteous holy lives before god yes there is a place where true believers in christ live lives that are separate we're going to get to that here in just a moment but the intent of this morning is not to encourage you to just do better it is to try to identify what it, what internally drives you to be the person who you are today because it is characteristic of life in Christ to bring change. And that's why it's so important whenever we come to the topic of baptism, for example, and whenever a person is baptized and they go underneath the water, that symbolizes, and that signifies that they have their old life is buried. They've been raised up as a new person. And that's why it's so beautiful when a person goes through that, that decision of baptism. It doesn't save them. It only shows that they've already been saved. They've already come into a relationship with Christ. And when they come out of that water and they're dripping wet and they're, they're standing there in front of all those witnesses, that baptism has symbolized and it is communicated without even saying a word that they are not the same as they once were without Jesus Christ. That that old life is buried and those sins have been buried from the moment they gave their lives to Christ and they have been raised up as a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us. 
And it is the nature in the New Testament when we read of Jesus' involvement in a person's life that when they come to a place where they genuinely yield their lives to him and they turn from their sin and they place their faith in Christ, they are not the same anymore. And whenever we read the gospel, what the gospel mentions is that the only way to know God is through repentance. It begins with repentance, meaning we see our sin and we are so horrified, we are so repulsed by our sin that we don't even want any of our sin in our lives any longer. And what we choose to do is, is that as an act of our will, we decide that our sin is so repulsive that we are not going to wallow in it any longer. And we turn from it. The Bible calls that repentance. And we begin to walk towards, with, and in the person of Jesus Christ, placing our faith in Him. And once we repent of our sin and we turn from and we turn and place our faith in Christ, it is not merely the reciting of a words to a prayer. Even though that's a component, that's how we demonstrate faith in Christ. It is the surrendering of our lives to Jesus Christ, to be fully devoted followers, not just in word, but it will characterize our lives as to who we are. We're His. We belong to Him. Every part of me, Lord, is yours. Do with me as you desire. That's what makes us who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, month after month, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, there are people in churches just like this, and they're, they're here faithfully, they're here consistently, and yet they are not, they're not even uh, locked into the things of God. They do not have passion for Christ. They have no desire to follow the will of God in their lives. They're just punching the clock, immunized. And their outward living doesn't validate that there's been any spiritual life whatsoever on the inside. Mark chapter 5, Jesus meets a man, you don't have to turn there, but he meets a man who had been possessed of demons, the Bible tells us. To the point to where he had virtually lost his family. His life wasn't even his own. Under possession of of the enemy. Jesus meets him, casts out the demons inherent in that passage of Scripture is that the man comes and he begins to follow Christ with all of his life, with all of his heart, comes to salvation, and he's not the same. What we read of at the end of that passage in Mark chapter 5 is that that man once possessed of demons is now sitting clothed in his right mind, and his life is not the same and never would be ever again. The disciple by the name of John The Apostle John, we read of him in the Gospels. He'd be the ones that would pin the words to the Gospel of John that you read of in Scripture. The disciple John would be a early in his Christian life, in his early walk with the Lord. He would be be a selfish man. You remember him because of he and his brother and his mother. They made the request, uh, Lord, whenever you get to glory, whenever you you, you step back into eternity, uh, back to heaven, uh, if we could, please, just have one spot on one side of you, and then my brother can have the other spot on the other side of you. Do you remember him? That was John. Very selfish, wanted to be the first, wanted to be recognized, wanted to have the, the seat of priority, the seat, the seat where everyone would recognize who he was. We also find John traveling with Jesus through a small village town. The people there reject Jesus. And what happens? It's John who says, hey, Lord, woo-hoo, hey, can, can we call down fire from heaven and just torch these people right here because of their rejection of you? That was John. Hot-headed, tempestuous, contemptuous. He was a person who wanted to be first. He was somewhat selfish. And yet when we read the five chapters of the book of 1 John, at the end of the New Testament, 40 years after he walked with Christ, he's, he's been changed. You can't read those five chapters in First John without coming across multiple times the quality of love and how it's love that dictates who we are in Christ. It's love that validates our relationship with the Lord. You see, he'd been changed because it's the nature of Jesus 
to change the life over time that's yielded to him. Are there peaks and valleys in our Christian walks? Yes, there are. Are there times when you could come to me and you could say, Brooks, you're not sounding like a Christian. You're not acting like a Christian. Yes, there are times. It's not the peaks and valleys that we're talking about as God molds and shapes us. It's the person who comes and he or she says, oh, I'm a Christian, but their life has flatlined ever since that moment they go back to you. And there's never been any evidence. They've just been the same old person ever since. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5, it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 names that fruit, or names the evidence of the relationship with Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's those qualities that are the fruit of the Spirit. And for the person who has a genuine, life-changing relationship with Christ, it's those qualities that God begins to graft into their life so that over time, those qualities are made evident. And as we look through Scripture, what we find is that the Holy Spirit of God who takes residence in the life of the person who comes to Jesus in faith begins to manifest those qualities. Whenever Jesus would say in the book of John, that we are the vine and he is, or, or that he is the vine and we are the branches. It was exactly that picture that he is our source, he is our life, and as we are engrafted into him, he produces fruit. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, produces fruit through us. Change comes through the life of the person who knows Jesus. Which brings us to Matthew chapter seven. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking in the context of false prophets. But what he says in regards to false prophets, I believe, also bears witness to the average ordinary individual in that our outward living will validate our inward spiritual life in Christ. It's in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus says what I believe are some of the absolute most chilling words that we read of in the Gospels. I mean, if there was ever a cage rattler that's going to be here in Matthew chapter 7. And so read what he says beginning in verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them, Jesus says, by their fruits. You see, that simple statement is, uh, is, is Jesus giving in his own words that simple principle that he brings change to the life that's yielded to him. He'll go on to speak of fruit. Look at what it says elsewhere in verse 16. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? He says, you'll know them by their fruits. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they present themselves. What will indicate who they are at the heart of who they are will be their fruit, will be the fruit of their life, will be the evidence of what comes out of the lives that they live. And it's almost as though Jesus, probably speaking outside, was standing near a, near a thorn bush and maybe some thistles. And you can almost see him there with his disciples and those that are listening. As he points to the thorn bush, he says, grapes don't come from this kind of a bush, do they? 
And as he points to you know, some thistles there nearby, he says, figs don't come from thistles like this, from these types of vines, do they? No, it was a no-brainer. You understand that, that, that uh, a plant's produced after their kind. You're not going to find fruit from something that is, uh, that is a detriment to the ground, a detriment to the soil. F- uh, figs, fruit, grapes are not going to grow from those that which are just vines and which are thorns and which are thistles. It's not a part of their nature. Verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them, Jesus says, by their fruits. Outward living validates inward spiritual life. So what does that say about the churchgoer that says, oh, I'm a Christian, but don't look at the details of my life because my words say one thing, but my life says another. You take a snapshot out of any true believer's life and there will be segments of their life where that holds true. A blow up with a co-worker. A time of weakness where they chose to do the wrong thing. But over the course of their lives, when you look at the fully devoted follower of Christ who genuinely has a relationship with God, where God has already said that the nature of that genuine relationship results in change, what you will find is is that, again, in the midst of those peaks and valleys, there is a constant molding and shaping and being changed into the image of Christ. So that to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but to engage in things that know, break the heart of God without any sense of remorse, without any sense of conviction, without any discipline whatsoever, and God says he disciplines his own, is an indicator that it, where there is no fruit consistently over time, there is an indication that there is also no relationship. Because where we wander and where we sin as believers, he will convict us. And when we step out of his will, he loves us too greatly to let us go our own independent way and wreck our lives. And so he, he, through the Holy Spirit, speaks into our lives. And where we choose to be hard-hearted and disobedient, he will ultimately discipline us. Why? Because he loves us like any parent who disciplines their child. Don't run into the street and they run in the street and you speak sternly to them and you tell them that's wrong and they continue to do that. What, you're, what are you going to do? You're going you're to discipline them for that. Why? Because you love them too greatly to to make a choice like that that will bring such harm to their lives. And for the person who consistently over time can ultimately engage in things that break the heart of God and have no remorse and have no care whatsoever about what God desires for their life, they have no desire to engage the people of God the way Hebrews tells us to. They have no desire to engage in the things of God. When the plate is passed, all they do is complain. And there's that church wanting my blasted money. This is my money, and I'm not giving to the things of God. And there they go calling us to serve, and I'm sick of doing things. And I don't want to hear this church call me to serve. All they care about is what's comfortable to them. That is an indication that the presence of God is nowhere to be found in their life. When that characterizes month after month and year after year, and yet are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Are you crazy? I'm here. Outward living. Inward spiritual life, period.
And yet there are those that are so familiar. They've received the immunization. I'm good. This one's not for me. Oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. It just may be you that God is speaking to. How many of you would say that you have been a Christian for two years or more? Let me see your hands, if you would. Hold them high and be proud. You're the ones, and myself, that this message is aimed to. Some of you didn't raise your hands because you're still investigating the claims of Christ. You're still thinking about this whole thing of living a life that's surrendered. And the thing is, is that you're thinking of it and you're intently giving it uh, care and you're, you're holding it up to the light and you're examining it. You know what I love about that? That when people do that and they take their salvation so seriously that when they examine it and they, they, they sift Jesus through their life and they finally come to that point to where they say, this is what I want to do. I'm yielding my life to Christ. Man, I'm telling you, those people are all in when that time comes. It's dangerous to take long because we're not guaranteed of our next breath. But to take it seriously and to make the decision is tremendous. Some of you, that's where you are. Others, you've come to Christ because I've met you. (laughs) And you've come to Christ in these past two years. You didn't raise your hand because you're a young Christian. And yes, God is at work in your life. And yes, he is molding and shaping you. But this message is really aimed at the rest of us. That when when we ask, are you a Christian? Have you been for at least two years or more? And we raise our hands, this is who we're speaking to. That for those of us who would say that as we look across the scope of our life, there should be that upward trend of changing into the image of Christ. And there'll be bumps and there'll be moments where we get off course, but because God holds us fast, he will ultimately, ultimately faithfully change us. I want you to turn with, you, with me as we begin to close at a few passages of Scripture, beginning in Mark chapter 8. Look there with me. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this topic elsewhere in the gospels mark chapter 8 when you get to mark chapter 8 move down to verse 34 jesus begins to dictate here what a follower of christ looks like mark chapter 8 verse 34 it says and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, Jesus says. In other words, there is no middle ground. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we relinquish the rights of our lives to him. That dictates what we do on weekends. That dictates how we spend our money. That dictates the motivation of our life. That dictates the course of our life. That dictates how we treat our spouse. That dictates how we raise our family. That dictates how we work in the workplace. That dictates everything. Why? Because upon salvation, we relinquish our rights to Jesus who gave up his life for us so that he then becomes in charge. And it then becomes foreign for us to be able to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not living like him. That completely takes that off the table because Jesus himself says that if we're going to be followers of his, that we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, meaning we take up that method of dying to ourselves, and we follow him. You don't have to turn here, but in the book of Luke chapter 14, Jesus speaks elsewhere Wade preached on this passage two months ago, and he did it very well. And one of the things he emphasized was out of verse 26. 
Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And one of the things that Wade uh, so very well communicated there was that God is not calling us to literally hate those closest to us. That runs counter to Scripture. God doesn't speak counter to Scripture. What it says there is that our love for God, when all other loves in our lives are held up to comparison, our love for God outshines all other loves in our lives to such a degree that all other loves look like hatred in comparison to our love for Jesus. He says that's what a disciple looks like. It's a love that not only defines who we are, but it dictates the way that we live our lives. The Apostle John would ultimately write at the uh, close of the New Testament in 1 John. Listen as I read from two passages here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. He says, uh, speaking of Christ, he says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So what happens then when a person comes to know Christ? Verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. It is a mark of the true believer in Christ to love those who are part of the family of God. And then 1 John chapter 2. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. Here's your evidence. If we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, Jesus evidence outward living validates inward spiritual life and so what about the close to matthew chapter 7 the most chilling words that jesus would speak in my opinion in the new testament verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, what Jesus seems to say there is that there are those for whom their relationship is nothing more than religion. And they'll stand before God one day. And they'll point to the things that they did on the outside. Though on the inside, their life was reigned by lawlessness. Void of the presence of Christ. And they'll stand before Jesus too late to find that all they had was a mere immunization to the very person, Jesus, and the very thing, the gospel, that could have saved them had they only surrendered all of themselves to him. So what about you? Have you been immunized against the gospel? 
Have you been immunized against the Savior? And when a message like this is preached and the gospel is proclaimed and the standard is set high that those who bear the name of Christ are to live lives that are holy and separate, that are pure, the best that we can. And I'll be the first to say that I sin perhaps more than any other. We're all works in progress. We're not talking perfection. We're talking yieldedness. But would you be one that would say that my relationship with God is mere words? And I point back to a supposed instance in my life where I thought it all started. But ever since then, there's been no fruit. I have no passion for Christ. My service is lip service, and I'm only here to be checked off. I don't care for a Lord. I don't care about the things of God. I only want to run my own ship, drive my own life. Oh, but don't miss the fact that I'm a Christian. What would God have you to do today? If that's you, he would call you to himself. Full-blown, completely surrendered totally to the person of Christ. For those who may have wandered, and you know that your life is genuine, that God's validated it before, your want with Jesus is secure, you know that he's disciplined you, but you've wandered from him, wouldn't you come home today so that your life wouldn't be a stumbling block to others around you, but a platform to make his name great. Let's pray. Lord, a hard message. You know my heart, you know my prayer. That I've not wanted to come off as judging people or preaching at people. And Lord, I've done the best I could. But Lord, at the end of the day, you also know that there are people in churches just like this, very possibly, very likely, even right here this morning, for whom their relationship with you is its almost a figment of their own imagination. Lord, they, they come to church and they do good things. But Lord, there's really never been that evidence that their lives are really changed for years. Yes, we go through dry seasons. And yes, we go through times when... It seems as though we, we can't do right. But Lord, you convict us there and you discipline us and we respond and we come home. But Lord, for some, there's never been that life. They think the way they used to. They live life the way they always have. They're not being molded and shaped consistently into the image of Jesus and yet they've believed all along they're Christians. Father, I pray that today for those whom that cage has been rattled by your word, not by me, but by your word. Lord, I pray that they would recognize today where they stand before you. That you call them to yourself. That you call them to faith in Christ. That will not cause them to be a Christian in name only, but it will radically change their life. And I pray that today, Lord, once and for all, that they'll make that decision to turn from their sin, that it might not characterize their life anymore, and that they would fall upon your grace and your mercy that comes through Jesus. And demonstrated through a prayer, Lord, they would invite Jesus to come in, to forgive them, to take over, to make them whoever you want them to be. Lord, I sense that if this was a revival in some small town in this country, the altar would be full. 
And yet on an ordinary Sunday, it can be preached. And because some can be so desensitized to the gospel, immunized against it, they'll never recognize that you're talking to them. So Lord, don't let the lost leave here without you. Draw them to yourself. Break their heart over their lostness. And show them that today is the day of salvation. Give them the courage to invite Christ to take over. And may each of us who do know you, who've come to that point already, may we realize that our lives are to be a platform for you. And Lord, the way we live on Monday through Saturday is to be as equally of a high standard as the way we conduct ourselves on a Sunday morning here. Lord, we are yours. And you call us to be holy. And you even choose to make us holy and to live holiness through us as long as we're yielded to you. So do your work today, we pray. And may we follow where you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.